I mean, uh, um, a mansion in a West Virginia swamp is almost worthless, even though it's got 10,000 square feet, but yet a tiny efficiency apartment of 300 square feet in the Tribeca neighborhood of Manhattan has a lot of value because it has proximity to jobs. So the market is more important than the property. You sort of already know this, but maybe you just hadn't thought about it in those terms before. Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. You are not going to want to miss this episode today. We have the one and only Keith Weinhold from Get Rich Education. And I got to be honest, I think Keith's podcast was probably, if not the first podcast I ever started listening to, at least one of the first three. And within a year, maybe, maybe, yeah, it was probably within a year of listening to his podcast, I had the privilege of meeting him um, through the real estate guys. Karen and I sat down at a breakfast table um, talking to Keith Weinhold that morning. And it was kind of funny because I remember him at that breakfast. We were from a gold mining town called Elko, Nevada. And he said at that point in time that he didn't really understand gold. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what he said. But in this episode, a little bit later, you'll get to hear about the three assets that he's like bullish on. And obviously it's real estate, gold and silver and Bitcoin, um, which was kind of interesting. Also, we get into some great conversations around um, why a housing crash is 100% gonna happen. It's inevitable. It's happening. Um, so many great conversations. Why he doesn't think real estate prices are coming down anytime soon. Probably not ever. Um, just a lot of great conversations. Keith Weinhold is somebody that I've followed. Um, I've spent a lot of time with him personally. I've had the privilege of having lunch with him a couple times. And what I love about Keith is he's exactly the same at a breakfast table, at a lunch, as he is on his podcast, which is really something that's refreshing because I love when I meet somebody um, who you think you know, because you've listened to, you know, three, four, 500, 600 episodes, whatever, on a podcast, YouTube channel, whatever. And then you meet them and they're the exact same human. Um, Just love that. And Keith Weinhold is one of those. So without further conversation from me, let's get into the episode. Well, Keith, I can't think of, and this is an honest statement, a better guest to have on the show. I've thought about having you on from the day I launched this show. I specifically remember um, being on a hunting trip. Uh, this was probably this was probably 2014, um, maybe 2015. Listening to your podcast, and you were talking about you were doing a a comparison of owning a home versus renting a home, and you got really into detail on the the numbers around that. And Karen and I had met you previously on a cruise and yeah, man, you've just been, I don't know, you've been so inspirational in forming my thought processes and so many around that, man, I just can't thank you enough for being here. Well, thanks so much. I wish I were successful at everything as much as I were podcasting. It's like, oh, why can't I be this good at sports or something? But I'm glad it's had a good impact on you and Kara. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. And you know, on that note, I you're you're probably one of the longest podcasters that I know personally. What are what are a few of the things that you've like really learned along the way that um you you didn't expect? You know, I really learned that I'm more extroverted than I thought, and maybe becoming a podcaster has made me become more extroverted and become a better communicator because I'm more concise in what I say. And if you think that you're a better communicator, that confidence shows and you begin to come out of your shell. As a high school senior, I was voted as the most quiet and shy student of my class, and the voters were our senior high school classmates, like the ones that would know best, which probably just seems completely paradoxical to to any listener because people know my voice. So I was a very unlikely candidate, Mike, to have a talk show. Yeah, it's 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 wild. And, you know, we're going to get into a lot of great, you know, real estate stuff, economic stuff, because I, again, 
I, I probably have enough questions and, and thoughts to ask you that we could take three hours. But quickly, on the branding subject and building a brand, whether it's around real estate or business or, or whatever, what have you seen change and what do you think the future of that space looks like? Yeah, when it comes to building a brand, you know, especially a, a media brand, if that's specifically what you mean, yeah, it's remarkable to have seen the change. When I launched the Get Rich Education podcast in 2014, a podcast meant it was all audio, and then we really had the maturity of video beginning about five years ago, and anymore, people are recording both the audio and the video, so like, yeah, I've had to comb my hair, like, that's one... <laughs> That's one change I'd need to make before the show. It's interesting with what you see is you see the maturity of what people still call new media. If you want to get traction on media with your brand and you want to get your message out there, I think one needs to ask themselves, what's the next big thing? When I launched a podcast in 2014, I still had to explain to people what a podcast was. I don't need to do that anymore, but it was easy for me to get traction because there weren't many podcasters then. I've also experienced failure with this, Mike. We didn't start taking our YouTube channel seriously until 2021. Well, by 2021, so many YouTube viewers are already hooked on their show that it's difficult to tap into that market. So my point is, if you want to get traction going ahead in media, you want to ask yourself, what's coming next? And be an early adopter if you think that's going to be the next best thing. Now, for a while, people thought, oh, is that something like voice-activated media? For example, like Alexa or Siri or getting traction there? I don't know. The buzz about that has kind of waned. Maybe, for example, today, a better question is, how do I integrate my media with AI more savvy than anyone else? You want to ask yourself, What's next and not follow the herd and do what everyone else is doing? Otherwise, it's really difficult to get traction. It's possible, but difficult because there is a lot of competition for podcasts and on YouTube now. You know, it's so interesting because I have my middle son, Tim, who he, yeah. he works he works with me and, and does a lot of the editing and stuff. And, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about this. And one of the thoughts was you've got this AI like voice activated stuff and um I've been thinking about like, how do you create like a show with like an AI voice that you have kind of like a debate? Like it'd be like me and debating Dave Ramsey, but it'd be like, you know, somebody with an ulterior um, thought process and just create a show around that. It might be kind of interesting. Maybe because there there's enough, obviously, Dave Ramsey media out there for there to be like an AI impersonator of Dave and an AI impersonator of you. And, yeah, put that together. That would be very entertaining. That That's a great idea, potentially. Yeah, it's so interesting. Okay, one last thing on the media side. What 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 are you thinking in this arena? You, you mentioned AI. Is there anything that you're really looking at that's like we really should be paying attention to this? When it comes to AI, um, like impersonation scams are becoming a real problem where you will get a phone call and someone might be impersonating. You said your middle son's name is Tim, impersonating Tim's voice in Mexico, saying he needs $5,000 sent to him because he's in jail or he's in trouble. A lot of people have gotten scammed from things similar to that. I mean, that's one thing to look out for with AI. I don't think AI can do everything yet. We know that because being an authentic person, I mean, getting back to the brand thing, your authenticity really comes through. You know, um, interestingly, Mike, just for fun, I was on chat GPT, oh, maybe four months ago, and I said, write me a real estate investing podcast script. Okay, like, oh, let's see what happens if I just try to get Chad GPT to write a script for me, if I could, like, read the script for a podcast. I didn't think it would work, and it sure didn't. I mean, there was accurate information there about real estate investing, but it just would have sounded really dry and like I'm just citing definitions of, of certain things, and there was no personality or authenticity behind that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think that's one limit, but, of course, this is just going to advance and and develop it and AI is only going to get better. Yeah. You know, and that's one thing that I think there's kind of like this ongoing debate where, you know, AI takes over the world, not in a controlling way, but, you know, even creators, like we're not going to have to put as much energy into our content and all of that. And I love what you're saying right now, because like if somebody created a spoof of Keith Weinhold, um, like a deep fake and said, 
hey, you know, go out and sell all your real estate because real estate is done. Like that authenticity is just not there. And I think that, you know, people that rely too much on AI, at least in the short term, I think there's still that human connection element that yeah. people want and understand and and just that true authentic voice of Keith. There's a lot of distance I think that AI has to overcome to get there. They, they do. And I think one misconception I see with a lot of people out there is people that think that AI is going to displace hordes of jobs. I mean, over and over again, we have seen examples that innovation actually creates jobs. It does not destroy them, but oftentimes we just cannot see the new jobs it's going to create. About two months after ChatGPT made a splash, a lot of firms, for example, began to hire for prompt engineers, for ChatGPT and AI prompt engineers, for example, a new job that we couldn't foresee coming. I mean, going all the way back to when you know, tractors began to replace by a team of horses or a team of mules. Well, people thought, oh, all these jobs are going to go away because you don't have to care for and feed horses or mules anymore. And when the Industrial Revolution took off in London a couple centuries ago, you know, people thought, oh, the, pro- the productivity of the assembly lines are going to put people out of work. No, it created new jobs for engineers and quality control people and all these jobs we couldn't foresee. So my point is, Over and over again, we see that technology and innovation creates jobs. It doesn't destroy them. Yeah, it's so good. You know, I'm going to, because I have so many things that I want to ask you, I'm only going to ask you one of the four questions that I usually ask. (laughs) What do you think, if you had to narrow it down to one thing that has had the biggest impact on your success, what do you think that would be? I think... It's really having an expansionary mindset. I mean, to narrow it down to my success, you know, it probably really starts with something really organic, and that is my father. And having a good father and being raised in a stable home with a husband and wife. Um, my father, he told me to get out and explore. Although he never put it in these words, he kind of demonstrated that Freedom is what you want more so than safety. Safety is good to some point, but freedom is kind of the opposite of safety. Strive for freedom. You can't live an extraordinary life by doing ordinary things and making ordinary decisions. And Kurt Weinhold, my dad, he was not a businessman. He's actually an outdoorsman. He likes to go, you know, uh, hiking and, and skiing and, and canoeing and things like that. Um, but really a lot of those same lessons and principles, uh, I transfer over to business. It's really the influence of my father. And there are a lot of fatherless homes out there. And that usually does not turn out well for the child. So I think it really began with my father in cultivating what I'll call an abundance mindset. Mm, that's so good. You know, and as I've, I, we were talking off camera, but I think this is probably right around episode 360 and I haven't been podcasting nearly as long as you, but you know, when we launched this investing for freedom, I used to think it was about financial freedom. And what I've really come to yeah. realize is like, even what your dad was talking about, and and your number one key to your success, I've kind of narrowed this down to like REM, not not like the band, but relationships, experiences, memories. Like what I think is like my quest for financial freedom, when I really bring it back to it, that's all I'm really looking for is to be able to have, you know, better relationships, have amazing experiences, which by the way, I'm a huge fan of following you on Instagram and 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 seeing you at the top of mountains and and having fun. And so I, I can see how your dad really instilled that in you. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's kind of funny when people see me on the Instagram on top of a mountain in Arizona or or, or Alaska. Um, you know, you know, it's funny. My team here, Team GRE, you know, they think I'm off messing around again. But before I bring in a new hire, I have to tell them, hey, even during busy times, you might see me exercising or in the outdoors on Instagram because that's just the type of thing that. I don't postpone physical fitness. It's actually a priority in my life. Um, and yeah, that's part of, you know, getting out and, and expressing and feeling that freedom coming from my father. And then, 
you know, my father, maybe he often didn't say things in the same words that I'm saying them in, but cultivating that mindset from my father and having it be refined by rich dad, poor dad, you know, really a decade or two ago. And it's sort of that influence that I adopted of don't live below your means, grow your means. It really starts with an inner confidence of not living below your means, grow your means. When we apply that to finances or for real estate investing, an example of don't live below your means, grow your means is when most people think of financial betterment, they think of something absurd and almost embarrassing to say, like financial betterment is cutting my expenses, like tracking Trader Joe's coupon codes or adding a flight layover to my itinerary just to save $80 or something like that. Those are examples of living below your means and staying safe. And examples of something that's freeing and growing your means is like making your first ever home a fourplex building where you live in one unit and run out the other three with an FHA loan and a 3.5% down payment, or learning how to be a syndicator, or learning how to be a direct real estate investor across state lines. So these are examples of growing your means which opens up freedom rather than living below your means, which is just reverting to safety and ensuring that you live a small life. So good. You know, you were, uh, you, you've been talking quite a bit about the concept of stop looking at properties. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as real estate guys, like I'm, this just piques my interest. Like it gets me, it gets me going. So elaborate on that. What do you mean by stop looking at properties? Yeah, I am predominantly a real estate investor. That's what my platform talks about, how to be a savvy real estate investor, because wealthy people's money either starts out in real estate or it ends up in real estate, one or the other. So, so much of this centers around real estate. And when a lot of people listen to things like that, they get interested in real estate and they think I have got to go buy a property. Okay, that's good. You want to take action, but I often need to throw up a stop sign for people and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop looking at properties. Okay. The property is only the fourth most important thing in a good, well thought out real estate investing strategy. The most important thing is you. Secondly, it's the market. Thirdly, it's the team, especially that property manager of yours. And then fourthly and only fourthly is the property. So if we start from the top, you, real estate investing begins with you. What do you want it to do for you? Are you looking for the production of cash flow, which is a common one and which was mine when I started out? Or are you seeking long-term appreciation? Or are you seeking tax advantages to offset taxes on some of your other income? Or are you looking for like a lifestyle component, like a beach or mountain place that you can use? So number one is get a line of what you want real estate to do for you. Once you have that figured out, the second most important thing is the market. And a lot of people overlook this, and I didn't know this before buying my first property. And Typically, you're going to buy a property with the expectation that there is going to be a rent-paying tenant or tenants in it over the long term. Well, that is supplied to you by the market because your tenant needs a job to pay the rent. So this is like why I like to be in a, a bigger market like an MSA, a metropolitan statistical area of 500,000 to a million people or more so that you have a broad diversification of economic sectors with things in sectors that have a future, like technology and medical. The flip side of that, being in a risky market, is there is so much risk being in an outlying town of 9,000 people where one-third of that town's employment is tied to, say, the zinc mine or tied to, say, the Air Force base. I mean, Commodities prices like zinc, they're really volatile. I mean, this is like one-third of that area's employment and economic base. Or uh, mil military bases, uh, they're quite volatile depending on what presidential administration's in power with hiring and layoffs and so on. So there's more risk to being in a small place and having a property tied to that small place than a lot of people realize. So that's why the market's the second most important thing. And then the third most important thing is your property manager. Long term, if you want to make this passive, you need competent management because if you start growing a portfolio and you have 12 tenants, you really want to 
have the ability for 12 tenants to be able to text message you anytime. Maybe that works with your life. Maybe it doesn't. But over the long term, it's probably not where you want to be. So that third most important thing is the team, especially that manager, because that's your team member for the long term. Your agent, your mortgage loan officer, they're only part of your team at transaction time. And then fourthly, and only fourthly, can we start looking at properties because we figured out the first three. And you know, Mike, how do most people do it? And by the way, I kind of did it this way starting out, and I got a little bit lucky. Like if someone wants to say that I got lucky when I started out uh, buying a property, they're a little bit correct. But now I realize the property is only the fourth most important thing. And most people start with the property and have a miserable experience in real estate investing. They begin with number four, the property. Then they go up to number three and they try to figure out, gosh, is there even a good manager in this market where this property is? Because that property is physically fixed to one place. And now you've got to hope that there's competent management in the area. Then they go up to number two and try to figure out the market that they already bought in. And then finally they go up to number one and it's like, is this even getting me on the track that I want to get on at all? So that's why the property is only the fourth most important thing. The three things more important are you the market, and the manager. So good. I love it. I want to give some credit to the real estate guys, Robert Helms and Russell Gray. I first was influenced uh, with that mindset from them, even though they didn't explain it exactly that way. And, and you, the listener, the viewer here, you already know this intuitively. For example, you know that the market is more important than the property. Tiny efficiency apartment of 300 square feet in the Tribeca neighborhood of Manhattan has a lot of value because it has proximity to jobs. So the market is more important than the property. You sort of already know this, but maybe you just hadn't thought about it in those terms before. Yeah, and it's interesting just um, even thinking back to the real estate guys, which again is where uh, Kara and I met you. Um, I remember having a conversation with Russ Gray I, where I started investing and I still own a bunch of properties in a small community of 35,000 people that the primary employer is gold mining. And, you know, in my lifetime, gold has done pretty well, but all of my exposure was there. My business was there. My real estate was there. And when I joined that syndication mentoring club, when I started raising capital, this was 2016, when I started raising capital, I remember sitting on the side of the road. I had pulled over on the freeway because I was having a call with Russ Gray and I was having some challenges raising capital. And, and he, he was breaking, you know, he was kind of coming through like, you know, why are you having challenges? And the thing that we realized, and this is just another version of market. I lived in this little community where I went to elementary. I went to high school. I had a company there. Everybody knew me as like Mike the plumber. And then when I come out, like starting to raise capital, they're like, like, what do you know about raising capital? And so that that market problem continues in so many areas that we just don't see. And so, you know, you give them props to the real estate guys. They opened my mind to so much, so many things um, about market and exposure. Russ Gray actually said to me, he said, you are a big fish in a small pond and you might need to just get into a bigger market. That's exactly what he said to me. Well, I, I guess case in point that that resonated because you did move. I did. <laughs> yeah, very, very true. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, too. And when we think about markets and the four things that you were just talking about, I'm really curious about something that I've heard you say a couple of times. You've said, and maybe this is market specific, I don't know, but you've said there's a 100% chance that we're going to have a housing crash. Oh, yeah. And this is national. There is a 100% certainty of a housing crash. And maybe upon hearing that, you're like, well, well wait a second. How could that be? Ha housing stable? Uh, no one has clairvoyance. Like, you couldn't say 100%. Well, yes, I can. There will be a housing crash in this era, and that is because the housing crash, it already occurred. It took place in April of 2020 when our supply of available homes took a nosedive and still hasn't recovered. So this area's housing crash is a housing supply crash, not a price crash. People waiting for a price crash are not going to get it. The fact that we've had a housing supply crash keeps a bid on properties and keeps prices pretty buoyant because you have relative scarcity 
of a human need, a basic human need, food, shelter, and safety on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we zoom out that about this and we look at it a little bit more. There's real profundity in a supply crash. It's a bigger deal than a price crash when we can't even house our own people. When the most powerful nation in the world, by most measures, can't even house our own people, this is a legitimate crash. And it's also a crash not just in scope, but in magnitude. Because we've lost about 60% of our supply of available homes. I'm citing data from FRED, the Federal Reserve Economic Data's available supply of existing homes. Usually we have between one and a half and two million. We did still back in 2016, but it began to plummet. And that inflection point where it really crashed was, like I said, April of 2020, the housing supply crash. So we typically have one and a half million or more available. It fell to 600,000. It went up from there, but now it's back around 600,000. That's a 60% crash I'm talking about. One and a half million down to 600,000. That's the available supply. So there is a 100% certainty of a housing crash because it already happened. It is that supply crash, not a price crash. And that's why, even with a doubling of mortgage interest rates in 2022, Home prices on a national basis are still really steady. Uh, On the West Coast of the United States, there's been some price attrition, and there might be a little bit more. But in most U.S. places, especially the eastern half of the United States, real estate just continues to slowly appreciate despite this doubling of mortgage interest rates, and that's chiefly due to low supply. Man, it's so good. And I'm going to try to figure out how to ask this question in a condensed, simple manner. But knowing that you've been investing as long as you have, and and you're obviously a student, I've learned so much from you, love the way you break things down. Some of the questions, you know, when we think backwards to different concepts, different formulas that we look at, such as the 1% rule in investing, and and we start having these conversations around you know, seeing housing prices go up. And and I agree with you, by the way, when I first heard you say that a while, I was probably a year and a half ago, that there's, it caught my attention. And I heard you say it over and I was like, man, but when we hear these things and we look at rents, not necessarily keeping up with the same pace, I've been asked a lot about, you know, the 1% rule, which was a a rule we used a long time ago. I don't think, and maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't know that it really plays out like it used to. And maybe because of, you know, interest rates and, and different variables. But number one, does that rule still apply? And number two, like, how do you, how do you adjust for these different changing rules when the rules get changed? Hey, I want to interrupt the episode for just a minute to talk about the Freedom Elite community. This is a community of men who are looking to scale their life, become better investors, better business owners, and just a better all around dude. can't say it any other way. If you are interested in finding a community, it's a virtual community. It's month to month. It's $199 a month. We bring in amazing speakers. We have an Ask Mike Anything once a month. We are hosted on a private platform. So it's off of Facebook. It's off of Instagram. We can talk about anything and everything we want. We post all the recordings. So even if you can't make the call, you get to see it. It's raw. It's fresh. It's real. You get to hear things from speakers that they wouldn't normally say on a podcast, that you probably wouldn't normally hear them say on Instagram, et cetera, because of the platform and what those things are. I wanted to create a private platform for that reason. If you're interested in finding a community of like-minded humans looking to scale businesses, grow your portfolio, quit your W-2 job, or you love your W-2 job and you just want to figure out how to have a bigger life, be a better husband, be a better father, this is the community for you. Go to freedomelite.co and sign up today. Again, not a lot of commitment. You don't love it. It's month to month. You're out 199 bucks. In fact, if you hate it, I'll give you your money back. No problem. Come join us, freedomelite.co. Yes, you're bringing up um, what many in the the industry call the 1% rule, where you want to ideally buy a property where you've got one month's rent as 1% or more of the total purchase price of the property, something that rarely exists anymore on any decent property where you could attract a respectful rent-paying tenant. Um, though the industry calls it the 100% rule, rules are rigid, so I've often called it the 1% guide. 
because really what we want is we just want monthly income to exceed monthly expenses so that we can control the mortgage. So we really look for cash flow. So I do, however, look at the ratio of rent income to purchase price um, because it tells me just enough to let me know if I want to look at more about the property. So I have seen properties cash flow with a rent to purchase price ratio of under eight tenths of 1%, even 0.75%. Does income meet or exceed expenses? So we've had rents increase so much. We've had prices increase so much. So you really just have to look at how that plays out and balance it with higher mortgage rates and sometimes higher insurance costs when we look at inflation hitting our expenses. I have rental single-family homes in Florida where the property insurance costs have tripled. So my strategy today is if you're looking for income property, yeah, pay attention to income exceeding expenses. I'm not that concerned about the 1% rule. It's monthly income exceeding monthly expenses. And I think it's a really good time to look at new construction, to look at new build properties. You know, we're talking about how to generate cash flow today. You're going to have really low insurance rates, even in a place like Florida, where rates have adjusted up for older homes that weren't built to newer standards. And you're going to have less maintenance costs when they're new build. And right now, I don't expect this to be happening a year from now. Builders are giving very generous incentives because they don't want to keep paying higher short-term interest rates on their properties for their builder loans. So a lot of builders, if you buy a new build income property, they're buying down your mortgage rate for you. And oftentimes they're giving you a year or two of free property management. And if you're wondering just who's doing this, just what type of companies, it's especially what are known in the industry as build to rent companies. So that's how to keep your cash flow buoyant. But yes, I'm still looking at that ratio of rent income to purchase price. If it's 0.75 or more, then okay, I'm probably going to look at does income exceed expenses. But now you've got some ideas on how to keep your expenses down with new build today. This might not be a question or an answer that can be summed up nationally. But I mean, at least in the markets that you're looking at, when you see housing prices do what they've done, have have you seen rents keep up? And what is your philosophy around invest? I mean, rents have they have to continue to go up if everything else is. So does it just take a little bit longer for them to catch up, or or what's your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, so much of this has to do with affordability, but you're 100% right. In 2021, nationally, depending on what numbers you look at, I'll just use the NARs. Prices increased about 20%, and then in 2022, it was about another 10%. Rents have also appreciated faster than historic norms, but yeah, they haven't quite kept up with prices. There is usually some lag time there. If we continue to have poor affordability for these wannabe first-time homebuyers like we have for them now, that just puts more people and keeps more people in the renter pool if we have poor affordability. Poor affordability is by prices staying buoyant, which I expect them to, and interest rates staying elevated. I don't really like to predict interest rates uh, because it's just so easy to be wrong. I'll let someone else be wrong and predict <laughs> where where mortgage interest rates are going to go. So, yeah, it's really about that affordability constraint. Part of the affordability constraint is stringent lending standards have persisted. So if you have that tenant that's trying to get out and get their first time home, they need to show good income. They need to show good credit. They still need to show plenty of assets. So those, along with the higher prices and the higher rates, keeps affordability poor and keeps people as renters. But yeah, there's typically lag time with rents catching up with prices. And we are indeed in one of those areas now. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not going to ask you to predict interest rates because you just said that you won't and don't want to. So I won't put you in that spot, but I just, something that I've been pondering and then when I have a brilliant mind on like yours who spends a lot of time thinking about this stuff, um, if inflation is, let's just pick a number at 7%. And, um, you know, I, I saw a post that one of the fed representatives at the single family forum recently said that it's not slowing down as much as they want, and they think they're probably going to have to, you know, keep raising them. But again, I'm not here to speculate whether they're going up or down. But if inflation is at 7% and it's not cooling and interest rates are at 
let's just say 7% for ease of conversation. Um, somebody said recently that I really respect that, you know, they think that if you look at nominal interest rates, like interest rates are still actually low when you think about inflation being that high. And they made the comment that they think that interest rates would actually have to go to 10, 11, 12% to really cool inflation down. Do you have any thoughts around that? You're talking about the mortgage rate, not the Fed funds rate? Um, no, I'm talking more about, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I know they don't directly correlate, but just maybe just interest rates in general. Maybe it's not 7%. Maybe it's either. We could talk about the funds rate, too, because that's where it all kind of stems from. But I'm just I'm just wondering if interest rates are really that expensive when inflation is so out of control. Right. Yeah. A lot of borrowers don't consider that. They see that 7% interest rate. And for some, that's a deterrent. But most people don't understand how inflation debases debt. Like if we have 7% inflation and you owe the bank a million dollars because you have a million dollars worth of mortgage loans, well, 7% inflation, after year one, you'd only owe the bank 930 k And after year two, you'd only owe the bank back 860 k at that 7% inflation rate. Because as time goes on with inflation, Wages are higher, prices are higher, salaries are higher, rents are higher, and all that. And the bank doesn't ask to be repaid in inflation-adjusted dollars, only nominal dollars. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that. And I, you didn't exactly allude to it, Mike, but I think like your 7% inflation number or higher is actually a pretty good guess. Even though CPI inflation is stated as being under 5%, we know that that's manipulated, especially starting in the 1980s with weighting and substitution and hedonics. So the real rate of inflation might be, yeah, like 7, 8, even 12% or so. But I think the important thing to remember when people are trying to play that and maybe create arbitrage when they're borrowing at less than the real rate of inflation is, of course, it still takes cash flow to service that that debt. You know, you still need to be able to make that payment, of course. So that keeps one out of a cash flow bind. If you can service the debt, meaning make the payment and avoid being over leveraged, then yes, I mean, 7% inflation should cancel out a 7% interest rate. Yeah, I love the way that you just said that and clarified it because even though like I sit here and think about these, you know, thoughts in my brain about is 7% expensive, the reality is like you said it's the cash flow and I mean even thinking about a house, let's say a $500,000 house right now, if I go buy a $500,000 house that feels overpriced in Austin, I'm pretty sure that in 2 years, 3 years, 5 years, I I'm not going to bet on it, but I'm pretty sure that house is probably going to be worth more in yeah. Austin, Texas. And but it's it's the simple thing that you just said. Can, can I, because rents are not keeping up yet, can I keep up with that payment along the way? So I love the way that you kind of, you know, just narrowed that down because even though I have this theory in my brain, if I can't afford the payment along the way, it doesn't matter what I think. Yeah. And if you, the listener out there, are still wondering about the mechanics of this because you introduced, say, for example, 7% inflation and a 7% interest rate, how does that really work? Well, you, the borrower, when you go to repay the bank every month and you hand over that monthly payment, that payment of yours debases on the bank at the same rate that their interest accrues on you. That's mm. what washes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where that nominal rate is not as simple as this, but if it's it's essentially zero at the end of the day, um, which is kind of right. crazy. Right, right. Yeah. Now, I think a few other things on mortgage rates since you brought up the topic. I mean, you realize this, Mike, but a lot of people don't realize that mortgage rates are not high. Okay. Historically, if we look at the Freddie Mac data, and by the way, Freddie Mac tracks their mortgage rate data back to the year 1971. So this is a pretty good data set here that the average mortgage rate, 30 year fixed amortizing loan on an owner occupied property is seven and a half percent. And it's still a fair bit less than that now. So mortgage rates are not high, but they sure did rise fast, doubling in 2022. And another thing a lot of people don't understand, um, but it's very difficult for people to believe this the first time that they hear this, is that higher mortgage interest rates correlate with higher home prices, not lower ones. That throws almost everyone off because most people think, oh, what do you, how could that possibly be? When rates go higher, 
that impedes affordability. So the prices would have to come down. And, you know, one thing that I like to follow through on my mantra really, Mike, is history over hunches. I think it's very easy to have a hunch that when mortgage rates rise, prices must fall. But let's look at history, history over hunches. What does history show us? Since 1994, that's about the last 30 years, there have been nine different periods that mortgage rates rose substantially, that rose 1% or more. Of those nine times that mortgage rates rose substantially in the last 30 years, home prices rose seven of those nine times, and the only times they fell were 2007 and 2008, when there were really some strange aberrations in the market. In fact, one doesn't need to look any further than what just happened recently. In 2021 and 2022, home price appreciation soared higher than national averages, and what happened at the same time? Interest rates soared higher than national averages. So it happened yet again. Higher mortgage rates mean higher home prices, Some people wonder how that could possibly be. And, uh, you know, Mike, when I talk to real estate investors, they're typically caught off guard by this. They're in almost disbelief. But when I talk to Ph.D. economists and other economists, they might not be aware of it, but a lot of them start nodding their head and they can see, oh, well, they understand why that would happen. Because typically when the economy is good and strong, that's when mortgage interest rates are rising because they need to cool off the hot job market and they need to cool off inflation. That's why there are higher mortgage rates. And what happens when the job market is hot? And anyone that wants a job has a job. What happens? People feel secure in their job. And when people feel secure in their job, what are they more likely to do? Put down roots and buy a house There also are some lag effects with why higher mortgage rates equal higher home prices. And thirdly, you have this rate lock-in effect where when mortgage rates rise, just like we are in these times now, many people are locked into low rates. They don't want to put that supply on the market. And again, that shortage of supply keeps a bid on homes. So again, higher mortgage rates correlate with higher home prices where most everyone in real estate thinks it's the opposite. Just look at history. You know, this is what I love about listening to you because you share information in a way that, I mean, it's it's true, it's honest, it's forward, and it, it just makes sense. But it's not like in a, here, here's an example. So a while back, I took a, I think it was a Freddie Mac chart as well. And I just took two different charts and I looked at the purchasing value of the dollar over time. I think from 1960, I think I started it in 1960. And then I took housing prices. And when you look at the purchasing power, it's dropping. When you look at housing prices, it's going up. And I literally just inverted one of those charts and, and they almost match because as, so here, here's the point that I'm making. If somebody would just come out and say, Hey, you know what? Your purchasing power or the amount of house that you can buy with a dollar has been depleted by 30% in the last three years. We wouldn't even need to talk about housing prices, but that's not the narrative that everybody wants to explain. And that's why I love listening to you because you get my mind thinking about things in a different manner. Like I was saying, the purchasing power of the dollar, if you just flip that chart, it almost, it almost looks like the rise of housing costs. Yeah. Or if you flip the housing costs, it looks like the demise of the dollar, right? Kind of interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you know, we're, we're really talking about economics intersecting with real estate now, and so much of economics can be counterintuitive. So that's why we're, we're talking about another paradox with, with why higher mortgage rates equal higher prices. But yeah, you touch on something interesting. A lot of people don't talk about, all right, well, prices are higher, but on an inflation-adjusted basis, Prices aren't that much higher than they were three years ago. Yeah, it's super, super interesting. Well, I have a random question for you. Do you feel in any way, shape, or form that, I mean, so many people in our age bracket have never experienced, you know, like, I mean, I was really young in the early 80s and when inflation was out of control and and even later in the 90s and all that kind of stuff, I didn't know what was going on. I had a touch of it in 07. I was a new business owner. I think I maybe owned three properties that I bought in a market that was good. But anyway, there's a lot of people in this day and age in our age range that really don't kind of see the big picture. And I think we were kind of drunk on cheap money for a long time. Do you kind of think this is like a new normal? 
Well, it is certainly more normal. 0% interest rates is artificially low. I, I, it's hard to predict the direction of, of interest rates. Um, but really, this is what people should be used to. Money has a cost to it. When you go to the grocery store to buy grapes, there is a cost of those grapes. When you go to Home Depot to buy sawhorses, there is a cost to those sawhorses, and there is a cost to money expressed as an interest rate, and you use money to buy either grapes or sawhorses at the Home Depot. So really, that's the profundity and the importance of interest rates. There is a real opportunity cost to borrowing money as there should be. That incentivizes you to put it to work. Well, I want to be really cognizant of your time. Um, I appreciate you coming here, but I have one more, you know, back to changes and AI and just, I was looking at something this morning and Starbucks has $2 billion on its balance sheet in cash in their app and gift cards. And it was talking about how um 85% of banks in the U.S. have less than a billion dollars in assets on their balance sheet. And Starbucks has $2 billion of depositors' cash on its balance sheet. And That's so a I'm great just, stat. You know, it's really interesting to think about because with all the banking things that are going on and, and hearing things like that, and what me, really made me start thinking about this, when Apple launched its 4.5% savings rate a month or two ago, with Goldman Sachs, they had like a billion dollars in deposits in the first week. And so it really makes me just start thinking about, you know, the mindset around money and capital and even return on investment. And right now, so many people are not trusting banks and they're looking for places to put capital. Yet when we look at borrowing interest at 7% on an asset like a house, people think it's expensive, but they'll take a bunch of money and and put it into Apple or, or Starbucks or whatever. And I think just correlating, you know, capital and bringing it together is important, number one. But the real question I guess I had, if I have a question is, do you think about any of this like alternative, um, banking or disruption and stuff like that in real estate specifically? Yeah. I mean, most people just don't realize that when they make a deposit with a bank, they're giving the bank a loan and that bank might go make risky bets with their money. There used to be a 10 to 1 reserve ratio where the bank had to hold on to 10% of the amount of their deposits. In 2020, that completely went away. Now the bank doesn't have to hold on to any deposits. There's zero requirement for that. So it's really made some people, although not most people, but some people make them want to do more due diligence on their banks. Most people don't know how to evaluate a bank's balance sheet or look at that at all. And really, it makes the case for potentially having full reserve banks, banks that need to keep 100 percent reserves. And maybe you're asking yourself, well, well, then how would the bank make any money? Because they, they want to take their deposits and, and pay you, the depositor, 1% or less and go out and make a loan for 7% on real estate and pocket that 6% arbitrage. That's how banks stay in business. How would banks stay in business if they have to keep 100% reserves? And that is that they would have to charge fees to their depositors. And why would a depositor want to pay a fee? They would have security and that their bank is holding on to 100% reserves. And they would acknowledge that that bank is performing a service for me by custodying my money for me. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and it's kind of interesting as you're saying that too, I'm thinking back to all the people that we've spent time with, you know, the real estate guys and Peter Schiff and just some brilliant minds. And it's almost like everything that's going on right now, you've probably been saying, well, yeah, what did you think was going to happen? Right, right. Yeah, people thought this would happen sooner. I mean, the Fed said we are going to raise rates until something breaks. They were right. They raised rates and things broke. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. Well, I really appreciate you being here. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think or have been pondering or just think is of value? Well, I mean, your show is investing for freedom. So maybe the last thing I could leave your audience with is my investing theme is that I invest in what is scarce, not what's abundant. What's abundant? 
things like dollars and stocks, things that can be created infinitely. I avoid those abundant things like dollars and stocks, meaning I don't hold a lot of dollars for too long. I get them invested in something that's going to meet or beat inflation. Stock shares can be diluted. I like to invest in what's scarce. And for me, my answer to that is real estate, gold, and Bitcoin. All three of those are scarce. It takes real world resources as well to produce any of those three things, real estate, gold, or Bitcoin. For real estate, everyone knows about the real world resources that takes from all the materials in a home, from gypsum to glass to copper wire to the land that the real estate sits on. And then gold, it obviously takes real world resources to produce that. And then some might not understand, it does take real world resources to produce Bitcoin, like hardware and software and a lot of electricity. And they are all scarce, real estate, gold, and Bitcoin. Gold supply inflation rate is challenged to break more than 2% per year as they try to explore and mine and refine and assay more of it. And then Bitcoin has absolute scarcity of 21 million. So really, that's my theme, and that might be something that your audience can get some perspective on. Investing what's scarce, not abundant. Man, that's so good. And as a little side note on that, I read the other day that every Tomahawk missile has 500 ounces of silver in it. So at the rate that our country is lobbing <laughs> missiles, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think there's enough silver in, in the, in the world. So, um, yeah. And I don't know well, how much of the silver you can recover off the Tomahawk missiles either once that's detonated. Yeah. There might be a whole mine over there in, in Iraq <laughs> or wherever we go, but yeah. Um, well, listen, your podcast was probably, one of two or three that I had in my podcast player for, you know, a year and a half. And when I first started listening to podcasts, so um the Get Rich Education podcast has changed my life. You've changed the way that I think. You still challenge my thinking and I appreciate it. So other than the Get Rich Education podcast, where else can people find you? Real estate pays five ways simultaneously. A lot of people don't understand that. I put together a video course completely free to watch. Each of the five videos is only 12 minutes long. Therefore, it's a condensed one-hour education on real estate pays five ways, just breaking it down really simply, kind of like I did with you on other concepts on the show here, Mike. And they can get that course free at getricheducation.com slash course. Wow. Amazing. Well, as always, it's enjoyable. I love talking to you and you always expand my mind. So thank you for uh, all you do for the world. Oh, we always have great chats, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. If you found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.